Today's sermon text is Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 978. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me as we open God's word and look at it together this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, your holy, perfect, righteous word coming from your very character, reflecting your goodness. We pray that in this you would hold up Christ in our sight today, that we would learn him just as Kyle prayed earlier. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pretend for a moment that sometime this past week you received an invitation in the mail. This invitation, like all invitations, has a location, a place to go, has the time you should be there has the occasion for whatever it is you're supposed to be celebrating. And then very importantly, kind of at the bottom, it has uh, attire, business casual. And because of your proclivities, because of what you like to wear, you, you hone in on casual. And before asking your wife or roommate or anybody to double check that what you're wearing is business casual, you go out the door in some baggy cargo shorts a floral kind of Bermuda shirt, some well-worn in flip-flops. And then because you just hate doing your hair uh, or because you have no hair, you're wearing your favorite ball cap. Now, in a lot of places, people are maybe too polite. They're, they're polite enough not to say like, hey, you, uh, you, you forgot this little part at the bottom or you misread that. But you can be sure as people walk by you, they're kind of turning uh, and then talking to the person they're walking with, like, did he, did he not get the memo? Uh, something, something must be wrong. Somebody should tell him he forgot that it's business casual. Now, what about the Christian life? Is there a certain dress code for the Christian life? In the sense that we've 
kind of talked about this business casual, something that you're supposed to wear. Uh, not exactly. There, there are, of course, there are encouragements throughout the Bible towards modesty in our dress, that we not, not draw attention to ourselves in inappropriate ways. But when you, when you become a Christian, you don't get like a special set of clothing that you're meant to wear from then on. Graham and, and Nate were baptized last week. There wasn't like a secret ceremony in the back where we gave them a special undershirt. And boys, I hope you're wearing it today. And if you do want to be a Christian, you've got to wear that forever. That's not the way of the Christian life. Likewise, there are churches that are more formal, some that are more casual, and you may have an informed preference on that, but neither of those are the biblically prescribed way of dressing. But the Bible does talk about how Christians clothe themselves in a different sense. You may have heard it in the passage that Becca just read for us. If you have your Bibles open, look down at Ephesians 4.22. Ephesians 4.22, where Paul tells these Ephesian Christians to put off your old self. And then skip down to verse 24. Put on the new self. If you were... Uh, if you were living in the first century and you were speaking Greek and you said these words to a spouse, you just heard them in your home, what they're saying is change your clothes. Get out of those old things. Put this new thing on. So while the Bible doesn't say a lot about our, our literal clothing, God cares a great deal about a particular lifestyle that is appropriate to those who belong to Christ. So this, this passage before us today, it's not saying that Christians have a certain type of outfit that we wear, but that as Christians we have a certain kind of obedience that we take upon ourselves. And in that sense, the answer to this question, is there a dress code for the Christian life? In that sense, yes. Yes, God cares deeply that we clothe ourselves in a kind of life that reflects Christ. A holiness of life. And here's the simple main point of Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Knowing Christ, learning Christ, changes you. Really knowing Christ cannot help but bring about a change from old to new. My prayer this week and this morning, uh, even along what Kyle has prayed, is that whether you are attending, this is the first time you've heard of Christ, you've heard the gospel, or whether you, this is the thousandth time you've been in this church, that we would continue to learn Christ even today, and that we would be changed and conformed more into his image by our time in his word and through his spirit. And as we walk through this text uh, to kind of organize our time, Paul is going to, he's kind of making introductions. Okay, so imagine Paul just kind of introducing us to some different people at a party. We're going to meet three different people in this passage. And the first person we're introduced to is the old self. The old self in verses 17 through 19. And I'm going to read those again for us in a second. But uh, but if you are new to Christianity, if, if you're a young Christian, if you're visiting and you're, you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here with us this morning. I want to acknowledge kind of up front that some of the things that we talk about in the Bible and even some of the things in this passage may be difficult to hear. Some of them are, are not just the most intuitive things that come to our mind. They, they are certainly not culturally popular. You're, you won't kind of hear these things and a lot of things outside of 
the Bible or outside of a church. And we don't preach this because we want to be vindictive or we want to say that we're better than other people. We actually, uh, we kind of walk through books of the Bible here and this was just the next text in the Bible. So I'm, I'm not choosing what to preach just to convict you. This is just what was here. And we believe, we believe that this is God's revealed truth. That God is kind of holding up a mirror to ourselves in some ways. And saying, let's look at this truth of, of who we are and of who Christ is. So if you have questions about this, I'm happy to talk to you after the service. And if you hear this read again for, I think this is, will be the third time you've heard it read this morning. But if you hear it and your immediate reaction is to, to push pause and just say to tune out because you don't like what it said, let me just ask a favor of you. And before you immediately say these verses can't be true, just suspend your disbelief for a moment. Just try these on, like, like a pair of clothes. Just try this on and look at your life, look at the world, and ask if this is true. Does, does it actually maybe explain things better than what I believe? And if this is true, what do I then need to do? And that's my appeal to you if you're here and you're new to this and if you find these difficult. Just try it on, put yourselves in these shoes for just a moment. So Paul begins here in verse 17 with a clear command. It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And at first this reads like Paul is just chucking some Gentiles underneath the bus, but, but don't miss the implication in what Paul says here and then later in the passage as well. He's talking to a group of Ephesians who are mostly Gentiles. They're mostly Gentiles themselves, and he's telling them, no longer walk like those, like the Gentiles, like you were outside of Christ. Which means, if he's saying to them, no longer, it means, this is not something Paul is saying just about a group who are out here. Don't walk like those people outside of you. He's actually saying, don't walk like how you once lived yourselves. That's why in verse 22, he can summarize this as your old self, your former way of life. And this is, I think, important. Christ calls us to live as Christians. We're called to live distinct lives. That's, that's distinct from a couple of different vantage points. Okay, there, there should be a distinction between those who follow, know, and trust Christ and, and those who don't. But not only is there that kind of dividing line, for those of us in, who are in Christ, there's also a distinction from how we once lived to how we now live in Christ. So if you go to school, if you kids, if you're studying in history and there's a timeline that says like, here's all BC, here's AD, and the dividing line there is Jesus coming. That, that's true for those of us who trust Jesus as well. Our lives are divided into two categories. Who we are before Christ, who we are in Christ. We were dead in sin and trespasses. That's Ephesians 2. We're now alive in Christ. And the dividing line, the thing that changes that, is Jesus. And Paul is saying here, don't be, don't act like you did when you were on this side of the line. Act in this way. You used to live that way don't anymore. And then he goes on to describe this way of life 
in verse 17, he, he's already done this a little bit. He says that the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. And then look at verse 18 and 19 where he kind of finishes this description. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. One thing that should stand out here in Paul's description is that this kind of life is one that moves from the inside out. It's one that moves from the inside out. In other words, Paul is not just concerned with the things that they are doing or what they're speaking and saying. We, we will get to that in just a moment. But, but look down and just think, what kind of area of life is Paul most concerned with here? What is he talking about that just he repeats over and over? It says they're futile in their minds, darkened in understanding, ignorant, hardened in heart. The main problem that Paul is concerned here is not, not one of action. It's the inner person. It's thoughts and hearts and desires. It's not like the old self caught a cold or got poison ivy from something outside. Something outside came and, and corrupted that. Paul's concern is that, and what he's saying is that the old self is more like cancer. It's more like a mutation on the inside of us that works its way out into actions. And this can be one of the most misunderstood concepts of what Christians mean when we say sin. When we talk about sin, we do. We mean the actions that we do, the things that we say. Those are sinful, wrong actions. And it's convenient and maybe easy to see those. And that's not wrong. Those, those things are sin. God cares about those. But, but to say that is sin, that's deficient. To say that is only, that is the only thing we're talking about when we talk about sin is a deficient view. Sin goes so much deeper than what you and I say or do. Sin is like an iceberg. It, you, the, what we say and do is just this tip that we see from the surface. But dig a little deeper and you'll know that there is a hulking mass underneath there. Paul is saying that is like our old self. Our old self, it's not just what we do but what we think, who we are. And this is not just a, a weird, this, may, this is not just Paul saying this. I'm preaching from one small paragraph of the Bible, and if you want to say, well, I maybe Paul just got this wrong, uh, let me just point two quick places where this is the teaching of the Bible in whole. Okay, so Jesus, in his teaching, in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, listen to what Jesus says. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Or if you want to kind of think about the movement of sin from one thing to another, James 1, 14 through 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by that person outside of him. No. No, he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Apart from Christ, our desires, 
our minds, they are bent away from doing what is right. We don't naturally want the right things. It's bent towards futility, towards fulfilling ourselves, not towards what God tells us is right. And these self-centered desires, that is the root that bears fruit in the actions and the words that we see come out. Sins like Paul says here, sensuality and all kind of impurity. And then in its very worst form, what happens, Paul even portrays this here, is that sin is, can work like a boulder. This cycle of wrong desire leading to wrong action, that is a sick cycle. And it can start kind of slow at the top, but it picks up steam as it gets rolling. And it's why Paul here says that they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's not just that that sin kind of satisfies you once and then you're done with it. If you've ever been trapped in sin that you feel like you can't get out of, you know what this cycle feels like. You know that it goes over and over and faster and faster. So that's the cycle of sin that we see. Desires are darkened and it leads to fulfilling those desires in the actions of sin, the speech of sin. And the consequences that Paul lays out are deadly. Just two that he has here, that living this kind of life leads to callousness. Ultimately, practicing sin over and over, maybe, maybe that first time you did that thing, you, you felt convicted and you thought, you know, I know, I, I don't think I should be doing this. But do it over and over and over and it's, it's like developing calluses. If you play guitar, if you, if you do something where like all of a sudden you lose feeling. And the things that one time brought a right kind of shame or, or you knew were wrong, you start, you stop feeling that. And ultimately the problem is alienation. The old self, Paul says, is alienated. Sin has separated us from God. And we can feel that even here now. Sometimes you can feel like I am, I, I, I feel like something is wrong. But even here, this is a place where if we read this text and it says that our minds are corrupted and deceitful, even if you don't feel that now, the reality of being separated from God is something that doesn't just happen now but carries on into eternity. And so when we talk about being alienated forever, the fulfillment of that is what we would say is hell. Of being separated and pulled apart from God forever. That is not a very rosy picture. It is not the thing that you would kind of accept. Yes, this is, this is me. I am not a Christian and I, I see myself in this. Maybe, maybe at some point, those of us who are Christians, we came face to face with this, but, but maybe today you, you say, I, I think Paul is just overly pessimistic. I, I'm not like that. And, and it's not like every Christian, every non-Christian rather is, is an axe murderer. It's not like they're out there doing the absolute worst that they could do. And, and Christians, we should be very thankful for that. We should be very thankful for God's common grace. God gives grace to all of us so that we don't go out and act on our worst impulses 100% of the time. Thank the Lord. Amen. And, and if you're, uh, this can be, this was a bent at one point, I feel like in my own life, I kind of wanted to prop up like non-Christians are terrible. That's kind of a straw man. Okay, don't, don't say they're all, everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is the worst person ever. Not true. They can make great neighbors, great coworkers. 
But if we, if we need to see this and we can get confused, we, we need to remember that Satan is the father of lies. Deceit is kind of his native tongue. And so when I start to think, you know what, my sin, my sin is not this bad. I think if you lean in and listen closely, you'll hear a serpentine kind of hiss behind that phrase. Convincing ourselves that our sin isn't that bad is one of Satan's oldest tricks in the book. And Paul here is trying to do the work of an x-ray technician. Uh, if you've ever broken, sometimes you can break an arm, and uh, I hope this isn't your story, but you're like, if you, you see it, you know, you don't need an x-ray tech for that if you know that sin is really bad. Um, I've, I broke a, one bone ever, and it was a small fracture, and I, hadn't, I didn't know what had happened until I had someone take a picture of it and look at that and say, things look okay here, you may feel like a little off, but you need to get that taken care of, or else it's really going to be bad down the road. That's what Paul is doing here. He is serving as our x-ray technician, showing us something that even on the outside, if it looks okay, inside is rotten. The inside is sick. And the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is not just looking at someone that we would all kind of say, here is a heathen, everybody agrees he is wicked to the core. He holds up you, and he holds up me, apart from Christ, And says, this is you. This is all of us without Jesus. Now, before we move on to the next person, I I do, Christian, I want, I want to think, what are, what, why this? Why are we talking about this? How can we apply something that is so sad? Something that's so hard to hear, even. Briefly, three points of application for, for us. Number one, Christian, don't hate the lost. If, if we, we do believe that there is a stark difference between the old self and the new self, and we'll get to that in a minute. And if we believe that there is a stark difference between the old self and the new self, there will be some sharp disagreements between people who see the world through different lenses. And, and our natural bent, and even probably what we're told just in the culture we live, is that People who have such different viewpoints ought to be enemies, ought to be, uh, ought to despise one another, maybe. You can get some points for that occasionally. But the reality of this passage is that the only thing, the only thing separating you, Christian, from that person that you are tempted to despise is God's grace. It is God's grace. Not your better insides, not your clearer mind and thinking, but God's good grace that he has given to you. And so when we're tempted to see people outside of us, people who who may despise us and we say, I want to respond in derision and despising them, let this passage show us maybe a mirror into ourselves and say, maybe instead of despising, maybe, maybe it's prayer and pity. And persuading and saying, let, let me show you, let me show you why I'm this way, why I think this way and act this way. Be, we should, we should take to mind the commands in Romans 12. Never avenge yourself. Leave that to the wrath of God. To, to not look on others and say, I'm gonna get mine. But to love those who are unlike us. Don't hate those who are unlike you. 
Number two, don't be surprised by sin. Don't be surprised by sin. Sinners act like sinners. And that's not to say that we shouldn't work for just laws or that we shouldn't speak up, frankly, for what we think is right and wrong. But it does mean that when you hear something happening in your neighborhood or or on the national newspaper, something that is tragic and deeply sinful, our response is that I have no idea how that could happen. I, I, I just don't know. Our response is, sin is rampant. We live in a broken, sad world. And ultimately, we want to point to the root. The root of all of this is sin that needs to be healed. It's not just that the person who does that kind of terrible thing has no hope, but that sin is still reigning and ruling in their lives. Number three, don't be confused by good behavior. Apart from Christ. This is kind of the opposite side of that. Good behavior does not always mean gospel belief. We'll talk about that later in the service as well. But but I, hopefully, what I hope happens is knowing where the root of sin lies kind of helps us think about how we address the problem of sin. Okay, if you have a deficient view of sin and say, sin is what I do, it is my actions. What's the solution to that? Do good stuff. Change it. But, but this actually says that, that what, is, what is the problem is much deeper. It is a root. And so trying to just say, I'm going to do more good stuff without addressing the inner man, the old self. That's like stapling grapes to a, a dead vine saying, look, a living grapevine. We'll harvest it next year. It'll be great. No, it's, it's still dead. So your good actions that you're you're adding on, don't be confused that that is what makes you from old to new. It's Christ. It's not this. We don't just need good lives on the outside. And don't be confused, Christian. If you look at your neighbor and say, a really good guy, she's a really great person. I, I bet they're a Christian. Don't be confused by that. I hope that's the case. I hope they're living good lives because of good root. But don't think that good actions mean automatically that they have turned and trusted in Christ. You, again, don't know what's going on underneath the surface. Ultimately, we don't need some good moral living in our own lives. We need a new heart. That is our need. And that actually leads to the next introduction, the next person that Paul wants to introduce us to here. And when we come to verse 20, we make a really abrupt turn as we meet the perfect man. Look again in verses 20 and 21. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. There's a phrase in here that that we've prayed about already. You've learned Christ. And Paul here is either a really bad grammarian or he's making a point. Okay, so when you learn, usually you learn about something. You learn about a person. But Paul here is, I think he's intentionally saying, that's not the way you learned Christ. And this is unique. Uh, nowhere, no other religion talks really about this way. If you want to go learn about uh, Buddha or Muhammad, you could go learn about them anywhere. Or Vishnu or Shiva, if you want to go learn about Hinduism. Pick your God. There's lots of stuff out there you can go learn about them. But Jesus Christ is the only one 
the only one you can learn in this way. Because he is the only one who is still alive today. I love what P.T. O'Brien says about this phrase. Learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person and being shaped by his teaching. And this man, this man Jesus, is nothing like the old self. There cannot be a stronger contrast between the two. The old self is darkened in understanding. And Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world. The old self has a hardened, calloused heart. And Jesus himself comes and says what his heart is like. And he says that it is gentle and lowly. The old self has given itself up to sensuality and impurity of every kind. And Jesus was around drunkards and prostitutes. He hung out with these people and never once, never once did he give himself up to impurity. He was a perfect lamb. The old man satisfies its desires. The mantra, the the kind of rallying call of the old man is my will be done. My desires I fulfill. And Jesus, in the garden, turns to his father and says, Not my will, but yours be done. There is no stronger contrast between the old man and this perfect man. And this passage calls us to take off the old self. And the reality is that Jesus had no old self to take off. There was nothing for him to do like that. And the beauty of the gospel is not that Jesus took off his old self, but that he took your old self and put it on. And at the cross, when he goes and dies a death for our sake, it is not because he is still wearing his old self. He had none. But he is wearing yours. And he is wearing mine. He is pierced for our transgressions and he is crushed for our iniquities and in death they, they wrap Jesus we're told that he's wrapped in this linen shroud he's put in a tomb and left for dead but, but sin and death and decay they cannot have the last word on this perfect man and so when the women run to the tomb when they walk inside all they find there is no body but just some old clothes Some old, dirty grave clothes laying inside. And friend, the only reason that you and I today can take off our old self, the only hope we have, is because Jesus has done that for us. Because Jesus has died in our stead, in our place, condemned, he stood. And we can now be clothed not in the old self, We can leave those decaying in a tomb outside of Jerusalem. We can be clothed in his very righteousness. And friend, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, I wonder if you've ever felt, if you've ever felt like you want to take off the old self so badly, but you just don't know how. You you try to do good. You try to say, I want to... I want to be a better person. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to commit. It's a new year. Here's some new habits I'm going to pick up. And it just doesn't, it doesn't do. Your desires are still 
there. Friend, your only hope, our only hope is found in the perfect man who died for us. And if you want to be made new, if you want to put on the new self, the new person, that only comes through Christ, who has crucified our old self with him and now clothes us, offers us his righteousness. And if that's you, if you want that, but you've not been sure how to get that, what do I do for that? Please, you can do that today. There's no six-month program to get there. It is turning and trusting in Jesus, and he will have you. He will take you for his own and give you that now. If you do that, I would love to talk with you. I'll be happy to answer any questions about that. Find any Christian you know here in this room and ask them, how can I have my old self crucified with Jesus and have his perfect righteousness? It would be our great joy to talk with you about that today. Now, having, having met this perfect man, this is, this is the axis upon which all of our lives and even this passage kind of turns. And Paul makes one last introduction here in verses 22 through 24. We've met the old self, we've met the perfect man, and now, he says, meet the new self. Those of us who are in Christ, we should have lives that look differently. And specifically, Paul says, you were taught in Christ, taught three different things. So, one per verse here. First thing that we're taught, verse 22. We were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, sometimes you can read the Bible and this can come across confusing sometimes. But because I I just I hope what I just told you is that in Jesus, the old self is dead, gone, done away with. And then. Paul has the audacity to ruin a perfectly good sermon by saying, go put off the old man. Which one is it? Do, do, I, do I, is it already dead? Or do I have to put it off? Well, the answer here is, is both. It's actually both. The Bible holds up both of those for us. Uh, Colossians 3, 9 and 10. It's a parallel passage. You'll hear some same kind of language here. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We, we have this tension here. We have died with Christ. We should put to death the old self. We have new life. We need to put on the new self. Those are both true. It's what we talk about or what theologians can talk about of living in a tension of already and not yet. Already and not yet. So we should look back at the cross and say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we can say, and we should say, I am not yet there. My, my old flesh is still waging war against me. And so not yet do I enjoy the fullness of that. The old self is not completely put off, not completely dead. And this tension of already, not yet, it should serve us. Uh, I hope instead of feeling confused, let this kind of drive you to how I think the Bible wants us to fight for holiness. Okay, so think about if you grab onto one of these and not the other, I think your fight for holiness is going to not look like it should, and it's actually going to be really hard. So imagine someone fighting uh, temptation and sin, somebody who's a Christian and says, I'm a Christian and I have been crucified with Christ. I am dead and I'm just going to let go and let God. 
When, when temptation comes, I'm just going to kind of do what feels right because I'm a new person. That, that sounds maybe really pious, really good, but, but maybe that person needs to know that the Bible tells us to work, to strive, to put off. It's good thinking about the cross and that we've died to sin, but we need to realize that we still work hard to put it to death. On the other hand, you have somebody who maybe says, you know, I've got to do, this is all up to me. I've got to do everything in my part and don't even think about the grace of God given to them in Christ that the old self has been crucified. In, the, in its worst kind of way, what this means is, I think this leads to paralyzing fear. If, I'm, if I mess up, who knows? Who knows if I'm actually a Christian? It's all kind of riding on me. I have to work and I have no resources to work with me. I just got to buckle up and do my best. We may commend that person for striving against holiness, but we'll tell them, hey, you forget, you have the Holy Spirit and you've died with Christ. All the resources to fight sin have been given to you. Okay, so how then do we fight sin? Those are maybe two pictures of what, how it can be deformed and, and not look right. How should we? What does it look like to fight sin living in this tension? Let me introduce you just to one of my, I love this phrase. I found it very helpful in thinking of my own fight for holiness. We fight for holiness with grace-driven effort. We fight for holiness with grace-driven effort. And both parts of that phrase are really important. We cannot, should not forget that we have grace given to us by God. And I would argue that if you want kind of an engine that's going to drive holiness through anything and everything, it is not, if I mess up, somebody may find out. Or if, if I mess up, my parents will be very disappointed. The engine that's going to drive holiness throughout your life and my life, when, even when those are not enough reasons that might your parents find out or that, that you could be exposed, the engine that drives holiness is grace. It's that God has given us his grace and we love him and respond to Christ so much that we want to fight sin. And then that, that effort part, we give ourselves to every available thing that God has given us in Christ to fight, to put sin to death. And you see this balance throughout the, the whole Bible, a place like Ephesians 2, 12 through 13. Paul tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that sounds weird, but then keep reading. For it is God who works in you, both to will, which is really good, your mind, your thinking, God works both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you have met Christ, you should fight the Christian life, fight for holiness with grace-driven effort to put to death the old man, to walk in new life. Second thing we're taught, verse 23, in Christ we were taught to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The desires of the Gentiles we read throughout, they're corrupt, they're deceitful. But what happens in Christ is that you actually get new desires. That God is working not just on your actions, but on your will and on what you want. We still have to work to put off sin, but it's, it's like we have a whole new set of taste buds. All the things that, that tasted so sweet, that, that you found pleasure in, and sin, they start to become bitter. They, you don't desire those anymore. 
And then the, the way that you may have been making fun of your roommate for living in a certain way and not indulging in the life that's given to him, all of a sudden you look at that thing and think, that looks attractive. I, I want that more than I want this stuff that I used to like. That's the renewing of our minds. We're given new desires. That's what's happened in Romans 12 too, just put into action. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by tasting you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our discernment meters, like apart from Christ, are not operating properly. We, we, we don't have the discernment to say, this pleases God and this doesn't. At least not perfectly. But as we're being transformed into the image of God, he even works on our discernment. That we can test what is his good will. Maybe even over lunch today. This would be just a good discussion with your families. Ask each other, how have you seen your mind being renewed into the image of Christ? What are some things that once tasted good that now you say, those are bitter to me? Reflect on how God has been renewing our minds together. Last thing that Paul tells us to do. We are taught here to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. God is righteous and holy and we are recreated to image him. Uh, These verses act, by the way, kind of as a foundation for what's to come. So there's lots of specifics. And if you're wondering why we're not diving into a lot of specific examples, Paul is actually going to do that in the weeks to come. But the, the principle laid down here is this. A life that encounters the risen Jesus cannot help but reflect him. A life that has actually come into contact with the risen Lord Christ can't help but reflect him. And Christian, God wants our lives to be changed for a whole host of reasons. But but one of those reasons, one of the reasons that your life has changed is because it should be a witness to the world of the power of Christ. If you go to a gym and, and you start losing weight, building muscle, getting more fit, you'll, you'll, bound to, you'll probably have some people who come around and say, hey, I noticed, I noticed a change in you. Where, where are you going? What's your plan? What, what are you doing that's doing that? And maybe you get those referral dollars as your friends come in and say, I want to follow you. I want to go join that same thing because that looks like it's working. It's doing something. If you walk around and you brag about the gym that you belong to, and there's maybe not that change, you're probably not going to have a lot of people saying, what gym you go into? And if they are asking, they're asking because they probably want to avoid it. Because they think it's not doing its job. In the same way, friends, if we claim to follow Christ, our lives are now like walking billboards in some ways. And people will look, people will look at your life and they can, they will read and determine what they think of this man that we claim has changed our lives. And if they see a life that has changed, that is transformed by Christ, that is old man to new man, I think there will be, not everybody, but some people will say, what has happened to you? I want to get in on that. And on the opposite side, if, if we say that our lives have been changed and transformed by this man and people say, I see no difference. No difference between you and the world or you who you were before Christ and who you are now. We can muddy the waters of our witness. 
We can make our witness harder. And the witness of others, not even your own witness, but those who come after you, can be harder to witness to those people. Because actually I knew some Christians who lived just like I did. So why do I need this? For some Christians, this passage should serve as a, a serious warning. The, the Bible does not claim that we will live perfect lives on this side of eternity, but it does claim that our lives will change, that our lives will be distinct. That we will stand out from unbelievers and stand out from ourselves before we were Christians. And so my encouragement to you is to step back and maybe even use today some to examine your life. And if you look and say, there's not a change that I see, I don't see what I want to you use a friend, and remember, we can deceive ourselves. So here's maybe another encouragement. Find a friend who loves you and who you can trust. Ask their help to look at your life, not just yesterday or the past week, but over the past several years since you've turned and trusted in Jesus. How does your life look now? And if you are here, and I know that there are some who maybe you need to hear this as a, as a warning, as a place to examine your life and say, have I met the real Jesus? I know there are others here who are saints, who love the Lord and who have tender consciences. And you can look at texts like this and you can be driven to examine yourself and maybe even driven to despair. And saying, I, I, I wonder if I'm a Christian because, because I've messed up in this way. And if that's you, I have similar advice. Find someone who loves you and who you can trust. Who can say, step back a little bit from just the past week. But look at you for the past year or several years and say, brother, sister, I see what Jesus has done in your life. And the fear that you feel, you need not rejoice. The Lord has saved you and your life is new. Friends, this is just a way in which as a church, we get the grace of speaking the truth in love. We talked about last week. We can exercise this gift as we help one another walk faithfully with the Lord. Church, what you are wearing matters. And no, I'm not talking about a suit. I mean your life. What you think, what you say, what you do, that matters. And if you've encountered the perfect man, the risen Christ, it is now our delight, our joy to reflect his character. There's a sentence in our church covenant, the promises that we make to one another to live together as a church. It says this, we will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, remembering that there is on us now a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. That's the commitment we have made to the Lord, the commitment we have made to one another. Church, let's strive with grace-driven effort to help one another live up to that. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the grace that you have given us in Christ. Thank you that in the perfect man, in your son, all of our sin and our old self can be given to him and we can have his righteousness. Lord, would you help us, help those here who claim your name to walk faithfully, to die to sin, and to walk in new life, so that we may show the world that you are real, 
that you have changed us and that you are worthy of all of our praise. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.